Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, thank you for today. We thank you that you've got us here safely. And we uh, pray, Lord, that as we study your scriptures, you would help us to understand them. We would help, we'd ask that you'd help us to understand that we're either with your son or we are lined up with the Antichrist. And we thank you, Lord, that you've called us out of darkness, that you've given us faith, and that we can say that we're with Christ. But I do pray for those that are listening that they would be challenged to consider who they are with, whose name that they bear. And so we pray, Lord, that the seriousness of this would fall on them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as you can see, we're continuing on in Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. Now, I mentioned that this is part two of unleashing the false prophet, this unleashing of the second beast. And if you recall, in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10, we had focused on the first beast. Well, in the second beast, we said, is this false prophet who mimics the Holy Spirit, who brings people to confess the Antichrist rather than Christ? Well, here we're going to see that he also forces people to take upon themselves the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast is going to be used to control world economics. You cannot buy or sell without taking the mark of the beast. And I'll point out that taking the mark of the beast also involves worship of the beast. You can't have one without the other. Now, one thing I want to mention before we go on, today as we talk about taking upon ourselves the mark of the beast, now I'm not saying we would do that as believers, but that's the consideration that people are going to have in the 70th week of Daniel. I want you to consider how many people believe this is something that could only occur in our day and age. And the reason they say that is many people believe this could only come about due to a cashless society. That is, you could control world commerce. You have the mark of the beast. You can't buy with cash. And they think that this is something that necessitates the delay in the coming of Christ until a time period where you have credit cards, etc. But I would react against that. I would say that this was possible in every generation where a world dictator could so control economics and who buys and sells that this is something that could have been fulfilled really in any generation. So I just wanted to mention that this does not destroy the doctrine of imminence in any way. Now, with that, let me begin by turning your, having you turn your Bibles to Revelation 13, 14, because I just want to do a little review of where we left off last time. Here in Revelation 13, 14, we see that the false prophet is linked to the creation of this image of the beast. Revelation 13, 14 It says, of the false prophet, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. So that would be obviously the first beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Now again, remember in verse 14, you see that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth. That's that technical phrase for unbelievers that we see occur time and time again. I think it occurs eight times. So the deception that the false prophet will bring is only for those who are unbelievers. But the big picture I want you to see is he is the one who makes an image of the beast and he forces the the cohabitants of the world to make an image of the beast. So I want you to see that in verse 14. Well, now John builds off of that in verse 15. It says, And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that, here's the purpose statement, The image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, notice here in the beginning of verse 15 in the underlying portion, 
It says it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. Now, that idea that it was given to him, I think the him there is certainly the false prophet. But notice, I think this is a divine passive. We know that ultimately God has the power to give the breath of life. We see this in Genesis 2-7 where he breathed out the breath of life into the nostrils of man and created a living being, namely Adam. Well, now he has given that ability to this false prophet. Now, as the false prophet gives breath to the image of the beast, in a sense, he's parroting what God did for the two witnesses back in Revelation 11. Remember in Revelation 11, in fact, I'll cite this, Revelation 11, verse 11, the two witnesses, remember like Moses and Elijah, they're going to be witnessing during the last three and a half years. Well, the Antichrist won't tolerate it. At the end, he kills them. But then after three and a half days, what they're raised from the dead. Well, notice it says, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. So here the false prophet is given by God the ability to mimic that very, that very miraculous deed. Okay? Now, the purpose of it is to bring more deception upon the world. And notice we have in the purpose clause, it was so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So here's something where we have to realize that God is giving the ability of the false prophet to do something so that believers would end up being killed. And we have to consider how this is part of God's decretive will. It's part of his predestined plan, his providential control of how things work. And so this is another passage where you and I have to say we have to accept the providential will of God. Um, He just simply states here that the ability of the false prophet to do this is designed so that more believers will in fact be killed. The other thing I want to point out is notice in this purpose statement, the speak and cause that I have in the underlying portion. These are two things that the image is going to be able to do. The speaking, of course, is something miraculous for something that's normally inanimate. But notice the result of the speaking is the causing or the doing, poiao uh, in the Greek. It's causing as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, what's interesting about that is we're going to see later, and I'll cite the passages for you here, in Revelation 14.9, Revelation 14.11, Revelation 16.2, Revelation 19.20 and Revelation 20 verse 4 that the worship of the beast is akin or synonymous with taking the mark of the beast. In other words, you can't take the mark of the beast and not worship the beast. Okay, If you take the mark of the beast, it encompasses or incorporates the idea of worshiping the beast and that is the only way that you're going to be able to buy or sell. And so we know then that obviously Christians are not going to take upon themselves the mark of the beast. Why? Because when you get to Revelation 14, all those who take upon themselves the mark of the beast go to the fiery pit. In other words, they're not believers. Okay, so you can see then why believers are going to be killed en masse. They will certainly not worship the Antichrist. They will give their allegiance to Christ and they will suffer the consequences as a result. Now, one interesting connection, I think, between Revelation 13 and Revelation, uh, or excuse me, not Revelation, but Daniel chapter 3, is you have a connection to Babylon. Remember, the false prophet 
reigns over Babylon. And here the false prophet who reigns over Babylon, as we're going to see in Revelation 14 through chapter 18, he is forcing subjects to bow down to an image. Well, doesn't that sound strikingly like what Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did so many years ago to the people of God? And sure enough, we see that very thing here in Daniel 3, verses 5 through 6. Nebuchadnezzar had made a golden image, and he had set a decree that anyone who would not bow down to it would be thrown in a, in a, a pit, a pit of fire, and, and be killed. Listen to what it says. It says, the moment you hear... This is Daniel 3, verses 5 through 6. The moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Verse 6, he says, But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. So here you see a connection. The king of Babylon in Daniel's day forced people to worship the image. The king of Babylon, as it were, the false prophet, in the future 70th week of Daniel, is going to force people to bow down to the image, and if they don't, they're killed as well. So what is in common between the two? Well, what's in common is Babylon and Satan who stands behind Babylon. Babylon's role throughout Scripture from Genesis 11 all the way through Revelation is to overthrow and usurp the power of God. Remember the people at the Tower of Babel said, let us make a name for ourselves? That's the role. So I want you to see the connection between Babylon and Satan because ultimately the one who is behind Babylon, whether it's the Babylon in Daniel's day or it's the Babylon in John's day that he's seeing in the 70th week of Daniel, it's all incited by Satan. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 14 and I'll show you how, in fact, Isaiah reveals that ultimately the one behind the king of Babylon, I think, is Satan. Okay, now, in Isaiah 14, we'll turn to verse 4, verses 4 through 15. Again, Isaiah 14, verse 4 through 15. Now, as we turn there, realize I'm not claiming that here this passage has nothing to do with the king of Babylon. I think it does primarily. It's about the physical king of Babylon, who would have been Nebuchadnezzar more than likely, that Isaiah had in mind. However, some of the language that is used shows an affinity to Satan. I think the reason Isaiah uses that language is because ultimately the one who incites the king of Babylon is Satan. Satan's desire is that all humanity would say, I will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil, that we'd all become our own lawgivers and usurp God's authority. And so how do we know that? Well, notice in Isaiah 14, 4, Isaiah says, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now stop there. The term taunt there, it may be the correct rendering. I won't deny that. But you have to realize that the term mashal in Hebrew is often used with a proverb. We see that in the Pentateuch especially. So mashal is often not a taunt in Hebrew, but it has to do with a proverb that reveals the inner truth of something. Now, oh yeah, Ed. This says parable in the Jewish publication. Yeah, there you go. Exactly right. So thank you. So that just shows you that a lot of people are saying this isn't a taunt where they're saying, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, we're going to, 
you know, get you the king of Babylon. I don't think that that's the issue here. I think what Isaiah is getting at, although it seems like a little bit of a taunt as you read the context, but I think the big issue is that there's an inner revealing, or I should say a revealing of the inner truth of the king of Babylon. And I think that's the idea here that Isaiah has in mind, that ultimately what incites him is this desire to usurp God and therefore to line up with Satan. I think that that's the grand point. So realize Mashal could be rendered a proverb, something like that. So again, he says that you will take up this taunt or proverb against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. Notice verse 7, it says, The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Now stop there. This is obviously universal in scope, this rejoicing over the destruction of the king of Babylon. And one of the questions that that raises is this referring to the Babylon of the end, because obviously the Babylon at the end has to do with a universal scope of destruction over the world. Well, I would say that it has to do primarily with the Babylon in Isaiah's day. But there's both a near and the far. Because remember, King Nebuchadnezzar, his influence and Babylon's influence reached the whole known world at that time. So I don't think we have to say that it's something in the future. But what's in the near term in Isaiah's day is always foreshadowing the future day of the Lord. That's how I think we should look at it. So, again, we'll continue in verse 8. He says, Even the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Now, stop there. That's really curious. Why would the cypress trees be rejoicing? Well, normally when these dictators, whether it be the Assyrian dictator or the Babylonian dictator Nebuchadnezzar, when they would lay siege against a country, they would get rid of all the natural resources, like the cedars of Lebanon. Sometimes they would use the cedars for military purposes themselves to build up siege ramps, etc. But oftentimes they would just cut waste to these forests to just simply desecrate and decimate any natural resources that their enemies had. Okay, And so in a sense, Babylon, the king of Babylon, is destroying the natural, I use that term in the sense that God created it, destroying the natural order that God created. And so in that way, he's even being like God. God creates, king of Babylon destroys. Wow, he must be really powerful. Even that is a sense of boasting by the king of Babylon. Now notice here in verse 9, it says, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. Now stop there. In verse 11, notice the reference to the maggots and the worms as the covering. I think this is an indicator that Isaiah does indeed have a physical body of a physical king in mind. However, notice as we transition into verse 12, there's an incitement of this physical king of Babylon, and he has the same motivations, I believe, as Satan himself. Notice in verse 12, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, 
son of the dawn. Now, this is language that's often used of the sons of God, the divine Elohim. It says, you have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Listen to the boasting. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will set, or excuse me, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. Now stop there. Notice he will set himself in the assembly of the recesses of the north. The term north there is Zaphon. I always talk about not Zaphon, but Zaphon. Okay, Z-A-P-H-O-N, if you're going to transliterate it. And that has to do with Mount Hermon. That was the recesses of the north. Now, what's significant about Mount Hermon? Well, according to the book First Enoch, that's where all the demonic activity came down, namely the Nephilim. Okay, And so there's this boasting of the Nephilim. There's the boasting of the king of Babylon that they will, in fact, usurp God's authority. And so he's lining up with one like that. Notice in verse 14, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. So notice in verse 14, there's this boasting by the king of Babylon about the zenith, zenith of his power. But in reality, what ends up happening to him, verse 15, it says, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recess of the pit. So when he confronts Yahweh, this king of Babylon, his grandiose ideas that he will elevate himself to some zenith of power above even God. But in reality, when he confronts Yahweh, he's going to be thrown down to the nadir, down to the very pit. Why? Because no one can confront Yahweh. Now, as we read that, I think it's very clear that here the king of Babylon is lining up with Satan who wants to usurp God's authority. And we see the same thing with the king of Babylon in the 70th week of Daniel. Yeah. I wonder if, in a wicked way, we have some of the same things going on that you do in Bible prophecy in a good way. For example, on the scene of history, we had David. Wow. Okay, so he was God's king, and he was the one... Who would, whose throne would go on. Right, right. Okay. But the, so you had the near and the far. Yeah. So the far is Messiah. Exactly. The ultimate one who sits on the throne of David. Right. So I wonder if this isn't, I'm just asking, but. Yeah, right. I see what you're saying. In There's a, a parallel. way. Yeah. You have a satanic version of David of and David. Messiah. Right, right. If the king of Babylon, the wicked David. Right. And. Satan or Antichrist, right? The one who sits on the throne of Satan. Uh, That's later. A great. Yeah. Do you think there's any? Yeah, you know, it certainly seems that? to be like that, doesn't it? Yeah. So you have David. Well, I wondered that for some time, but yeah. I, I haven't heard anybody uh, important say that. So <laughs> I don't know no, if it's, it's very true good. Or not, but. Very good. Yeah. So does everyone see what he's pointing out? That David is a foreshadowing of the Christ to come. Nebuchadnezzar, in a sense, is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist to come or the false prophet lined up with the Antichrist. Yeah, Eric. Well, and, and, you know, just to tie in a little bit, you know, Satan is described, and I don't know where, but it's described in the, he's a counterfeiter. He's a great counterfeiter. Yeah, and so, and I've heard people say this, and this is, I don't know if this is biblically, if you can prove this biblically, but just that Satan takes that which is most beautiful mm. in God's creation and he makes it perverted and ugly yeah, yeah that's amen. more of a, an opinion <laughs> i don't know if, if you can prove right. that from the bible but uh the counterfeit idea and all of it it's just it's like a parallel counterfeit thing 
Yeah, Eric, I think you're yeah. exactly right. In fact, on the last slide, I'll tie back into that because I think John deliberately through Revelation 12 and 13 wants to show us that. And I'll just give a foreshadowing of our last slide. In Revelation 12, who comes on the scene? The dragon. That's Satan. That's the false father. Revelation 13, right after that, who comes on the scene? The false son, the false, the Antichrist. And then after he's revealed, who comes on the scene? The false prophet. Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. That's the false Holy Spirit. And so we have a parroting of what the true Trinity does through the false Trinity. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about the number 666. But I think you're exactly right. I think John himself gives evidence that there is indeed a perversion of what God has done. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, what I wanted you to see then is there's something behind Babylon or someone behind Babylon in both Daniel's day and in the future 70th week of Daniel. Satan's ultimately behind Babylon trying to overthrow and usurp God. Now, let's talk about the beast's control over the world's economy. In verses 16 through 17, it says, And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, dear ones, notice here at the beginning in verse 16, the underline, it says, he causes. I think when you look at the syntax of this passage, the he causes must be the false prophet. I think that that's the best reading. So the false prophet using the image of the beast is the one who causes the small, the great, the rich and the poor, the freemen and the slaves to have to take this mark in order to buy or sell and to interact in the world of commerce. Now, notice how encompassing the work of the false prophet is by forcing people to take this mark. It affects the small and the great. And I think that has to do with position. No matter if you're the leader of a country or you're the lowliest man who works in that country, you're affected. Notice the rich and the poor. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. If you're the wealthiest man or the poorest man, you have to participate in the system. Notice it doesn't matter if you're a free man or a slave. So the idea then is John is certainly showing every person. No one's excluded from having to take this mark. Now, as I mentioned in the previous slide, what's interesting is the worship of the beast is also synonymous with taking the mark of the beast. And I'm going to show you that again in Revelation 14, verse 9, Revelation 14, 11, and on and on, that when you take the mark of the beast, it is akin and synonymous with worshiping the beast. Okay, so they're linked hand in hand. If you take the mark of the beast, you're worshiping the beast. If you're worshiping the beast, you're going to have to take a mark of the beast. And so this shows you again why it is that believers cannot participate in this system. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is when we get to Revelation 14, you're going to see that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will indeed be those who perish. Okay? Do you remember uh, last week Bob made a really good point, and that is during this church age, it's not apparent who necessarily belongs to God or who belongs to the lawless one. Okay? There's no name written on their head, right? But what's interesting is in the 70th week of Daniel, it becomes very apparent. There are those who are going to have the mark of the beast. They belong to him. And there are those who are going to have even the mark on their forehead, the 144,000 who belong to God. It's going to become very apparent. The issue now is we don't know. We don't know 
But what matters is believing Christ, the promises of God, and that's the way that you escape the lawless one and you have the mark of God, even though we can't see it today. Now, notice here the mark of the beast is also parroting the sealing of the 144,000 that we saw back in Revelation 7, verses 3 through 4. I want to show you that. It says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Remember, this is the angel saying this. Until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And he says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So there's the sons of God. They have their mark on their forehead. And as we're going to see in Revelation 14, in fact, it's the name of God. Okay, so they have their mark. Those who belong to the beast have their mark. Is everyone clear on that? It's very conspicuous. It's all out in the open. You belong to one camp or the other, as Bob was mentioning last week. Now, also, I want you to see here in verse 17, notice where it talks about the name. In verse 17, it says, And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. What you have to realize is that the name here in the grammar is an apposition to the mark. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you what an appositional statement is. If I said, my wife, Deborah Dalma, comma, a really lovely lady who fixes me lunch every day, comma, was going to the mall. I don't know. I'm just making something up. In between the commas is an appositional statement. It further gives you information as to the one I'm talking about. In the same way, the one, the, the, notice the name that's in the box. It's an apposition to the mark. So if you want to know what the mark is, it's namely the name. So that is the mark of the beast. It's his name or, as it says, the number, as we're going to see in the next slide, it's 666. Okay, is that clear? So they're in apposition to one another. Now, Thomas makes a very good point. This is Robert Thomas, and I want to cite him. He's a very good scholar. He writes a commentary that's put out by Moody Press. It's a two-volume work. And I want to cite some of my sources periodically so that you can look them up and get them for yourselves. It's put out by Moody Press, two-volume set, Robert Thomas. He's a scholar, I believe, uh, teaching at John MacArthur Seminary. What is that, Master Seminary? Out West there, yeah. So listen to what Thomas says. He says, quote, This embargo of money and food, and that's, that happens to those who don't take themselves the mark of the beast, this embargo of money and food will not affect those protected by God in the wilderness. It is the rest of the woman's seed that will bear the brunt of this, unquote. So remember, we had talked about how part of the seed of the woman, Israel, is going to be protected in the wilderness. They're not going to be affected by this taking or not taking of the mark of the beast. Okay, they're going to be protected by God in the wilderness. But for the rest of God's children, outside of that, remember it was talked about the rest of the seed, especially the 144,000 and elsewhere, they're going to have a very difficult time. In fact, many of them will perish, as we're going to see in Revelation chapter 14. Okay? Why? Because they will not take upon the mark of the beast. They will even forsake the God of their stomach for the sake of serving Christ. And we're going to see martyrdom such as the world has never occurred in the last half of Daniel's 70th week. Now, as we continue, I think this really gives us an application point, and that is whose name do you bear? 
Okay, I want to get back to this idea that at the end of the day, even though you and I are living during the church age and we can't physically see, oh, they've got the mark of the beast or they have the mark of God, that's really the way it is. And at the end of the day, each person by faith in Christ is going to be serving God and belong to him or they're going to be serving the lawless one. And that's the way it is even during the church age. And so I want you to consider for a moment the third commandment out of Exodus 20, verse 7, where God said, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, most of you are familiar with the third commandment, not to take the Lord's name in vain. But what's interesting is in Christian circles especially, the application, I think, of this commandment has been far too limited in that most people believe it simply has to do with taking the name of Yahweh upon our lips and using it either as a curse word or falsely in an oath. Now, as I say that, I'm not claiming that that isn't part of this. I think that that would be a wicked thing to use God's name as a curse or to use it invoking an oath and then violating that oath. However, the application of the third commandment to the people of Israel went far beyond that. And the idea that the Israelites had, especially in the prophets, is that if you bore the name of Yahweh, if you claim to belong to him, and yet you live in a faithless and unfaithful way, you are bringing disrepute upon Yahweh's name. You are bringing dishonor and you are violating the third commandment. And so it was Yahweh saying, how can you claim to belong to me? And yet you live for the pagan gods and you live for their pagan deeds. That's the sort of idea. And think about that today. If you're a Christian and you bear the name of Christ and yet you live no differently than the world, you've taken the Lord's name in vain. Bob, you wrote a whole, um, not a whole article, but you did a whole sermon on that that we watched probably a, a year ago or so, correct? Yeah, and I was just thinking there's a verse. I, my computer's set up in there so I can't look yeah, for it. Yeah. Somebody here probably can. Let him who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There you go. I know that's a verse. Yeah. I think. <laughs> if it's not a verse, it's a good idea. <laughs> but that's that same idea. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, I preached about that, yeah. Yeah, amen. Um, that message, what did you title that? Because I want people to be able to look that up. It's a very important one. If you want to understand the Third Commandment, is it just called? Uh... I don't remember the title. Okay. But we have the Ten Commandments series yeah. somewhere on our website. So, yeah, if you want to pull that up on our archives, go to our website. And if you put in, we have a little search engine. You can find that. Um, and you can find that message. It's one of the most important ones, I think, about understanding the third commandment. So if you put in um, taking the Lord's name in vain, Bob Dewey or something like that, it'll probably come up in the search engine, I would think. Now, yeah, Eric. And this is actually a question, too. Um, we run into people when we do the evangelism that they've kind of made up their own God. Yeah. Know? And some of them call themselves Christian. Sure. You know, oh, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And, and then you talk to them, and there's all kinds of other things. And so my question is this. I, I've wondered, and some of us have talked to and, and among ourselves, I don't know if that's um, creating your own God. In other words, my, my instinct is, is that they're violating a commandment, and we're under the new covenant the law of Christ, but yeah. but but that, those commandments are still in effect. Those commandments yeah, of exactly. not creating your own God and all of that. So right. I'm not sure if someone who claims to be a Christian, but yet has created their own definition, I don't know if they are taking the name of the Lord in vain because they're taking the name of the Lord. Sure, but it's in vain. 
or, or if they're just creating an idol. I don't know which yeah, one. They're I, violating I would something. It, <laughs> I would see it as the first commandment. Thou shall have no other gods before me. So they have an idol that they've created. Yeah. But you're certainly right. People who claim to be Christians and live for other gods are taking the Lord's name in a vain way. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. But you're right. The new covenant prohibits the very thing. Think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 to the Corinthian congregation. He says, I fear that you would go after a different spirit, a different Christ, a different gospel. And certainly that would be idolatry. They're taking a different God than the one that's actually revealed. Um, Bob and I have been doing radio in Colossians. And if you think about the issue of that in Asia Minor, where the Colossians began with faith in Christ, but then they began to believe that in order to get protection from the angelic realm that controlled their fate, they had to invoke angels, they had to engage in extra-biblical practices. And so Christ wasn't sufficient anymore. They had him in name only. Well, that's idolatry because the Christ that we're saved with is the Christ that will bring us all the way to glory. And so it's a deficient Christ. So they had a different Christ than the one in the Bible. And so that's why, remember when uh, Paul said, how is it that you who began by the Spirit are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? The risk of the people in Galatia is that began with Christ, but then he wasn't sufficient. So they had to go back to the law to be pleasing to God. Well, then you have a different Christ. Because the true Christ is sufficient. If you have the true Christ, he's not only good enough to save you, he's good enough to sanctify you, he's good enough to bring you all the way to glory, he's good enough to provide for you, he's good enough, he's sufficient. So they had a different Christ, yeah. Reminds me when uh, my wife had a lunch with a friend of hers who's a Catholic and, you know, praying to St. Christopher and all that, that sort of reminds me of the same idea, you know. Yeah, Right, yeah. So now they, Christ reveals the fact that he's the mediator and that we can go directly to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. They have a different system. What he's revealed isn't sufficient. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, Bob. Um, Jesus, uh, to what you're saying, actually anticipated this. And there's a nice section in Matthew 7. And in there, people are going to say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did this, we did this. Right. But he says, depart from me. And they were, I think I might preach on this today. I can't tell until I see my PowerPoint. (laughs) I spent all day yesterday writing a sermon for two weeks from now. Yeah. (laughs) Probably a bad idea. So I'm (laughs) confused, right? If I get confused, that's my excuse. (laughs) You're a week ahead. But I'll tell you, it is true. Matthew 7, depart from me. You who work lawlessness. Yes. Remember that sermon, First John? Either lawlessness or abiding. Right. Okay? These ones claim they were doing mighty works. Right. Jesus said, no, lawless, you're doing lawlessness. Right. So, but they were claiming the name of the Lord. Now, the true disciples are building on the rock. The lawless ones are building on sand. Wow. There you go. And the ones who build on the rock are those who hear these words of mine and do them. Amen. And John is saying here, oh, the ones born of God are not sinning, okay? And that they are really Christian, that they're really children of God, is, and there's the word phaneros, mm. manifest, step here. in the King James, or revealed, or evident, or obvious. So I think it's more obvious than we think. Yeah. 
And I think the Bible teaches black and white categories, and our minds work in gray. Okay? Hmm. Yeah. Right. And sort of pe- so people are sort of serving the devil and sort of serving Christ, and they come and they say, at least my readers, they all preface, I'm a Christian, but who's going to get these demons out of me? And so then I have this dilemma because they're saying I can be in this category, abiding in Christ, but everything looks like I'm in this category. The devil's having his way. Right. And the Bible's saying that's not possible. So now what do I say? Oh, you're not a Christian. Yeah. And what, so it's really hard, but I finally got a plan that seems to work. Yeah. I said, let me share with you some great news of what God says is true about Christians. I'd say it that way. Acts 26, 18. They turn from the dominion of Satan to God. Darkness to light. Darkness to light. And Colossians 1, 13 and 14. uh, Transferred. No. Rescued, transferred, redeemed, forgiven. I send all these verses. Say, isn't it great? Right. What we know we have in Christ, and that Satan can't do a thing to you unless he gets permission from God. We were talking about this on the radio, Second yeah, Corinthians yeah. 12. So just go to God. Take it all to God. Let him deal with it. And you know what happens a lot of times? I never hear back from them. It's not sufficient. They don't want to hear right. what God did in Christ. They want a shaman to manipulate the spirit world. That's right. One person even said that they'd gone to a psychic, yeah. and but they're a Christian, so they know that's wrong. So they're wanting me to help. So Bob, right there. So here that's I the same am. Same situation at Colossae, isn't it? Yeah. So they, is I, they want me to be a an authorized version of a psychic. Right. And so what do I do? I send back. Now what I do? I send back what God said is true for Christians. Right. And and then in the end, I say. Believe the promises of God. You know, I think I'll spend the rest of my Christian life talking about these two categories. Yeah, amen. It's so revolutionary because that's how it says either or, either or, either or. We think both and, both and, both and. Right. No, no. Uh, And I was talking to Eric about it this morning. I was just thinking about it. I'll, I'll probably do something about this in one of these sermons. What if you're in this category of uh, lawlessness. Well, if you go within the category to compare one to another, it's mind-blowing how different people are. Yeah. And that's what confuses us. So you go over here, lawlessness, and you have Jeffrey Dahmer, suicide bombers, wicked, you know, Saddam Hussein, blah, blah, blah. But you also have Mother Teresa, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Pope. Yeah, right. You know, nice people. Exactly. And they're all still under lawlessness. Right, right. And we, we can't believe that. Right. So we think, well, these really bad ones, they have the demons. These ones are okay. And then you go over to the Christian side, and I think there's a, a lot smaller distinction yeah. for the Christians. It's a smaller category. But John... And I don't think any of the apostles are trying to make a big deal 
about the difference from one Christian to another. Right. Not that there aren't any, like in First Corinthians 12, different gifts, yeah. different callings. But it's not like one is good and the other is bad. So if you're abiding in Christ, the distinctions aren't important. Now let me prove that to you. In the Gospel of John, toward the end, and Peter gets this word about what's going to happen to him. Yeah. Okay. And then what happens? Peter looks over to John. Yeah. What about this man? <laughs> what's it to him? And, and Jesus said, what's it to you? Right. Why do you even care? Right. See, we do care because we're, we're here and, you know, we don't, heaven and eternity await. So eternities forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so when you look back after a trillion years, yeah. well, Peter got 30 less years than John. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So Jesus, who's from eternity, says, why do you care? We, we have to believe the promises of God yeah. so we don't care. Amen. Okay? We want to be years long as the Lord keeps us here, serving him while we are here. But this is so little. So as we're in this other category, believe the promises of God, abiding in Christ, loving the brothers. That's the one I'm going to preach on soon, if not today. We'll find out. And uh, that's always there. That's so important because we're here. But because we're in the minority, 90-some percent, are lawless, and they hate us. They'll always hate us. And they'll hate us simply because we found favor from God through Christ. Amen. You know, Bob, it's interesting talking about the only way to bear the Lord's name, not in vain, but to bear it in a fruitful way, is to be found in Christ. And that's the category you've been talking about. We have to abide in Christ. And I want you to see here that those who are bearing the name of Satan, they took upon themselves the mark of the beast. They are those who live in that category of lawlessness. And I want you to see that's a problem that plagued Israel. So what I'm showing you is that, again, in the 70th week of Daniel, you're either going to bear physically the name of the Antichrist or you won't. You're in one camp or the other, but that's really the way it is now. That's what Bob is saying to us. And I want you to see that throughout Israel's life, they continuously didn't bear the name of God in a good way. They always bore it in a vain way. And I want to show you evidence of that. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 9, 18 through 19. And the reason I want you to do this, turn your Bibles again to Daniel 9, 18 through 19, is I want you to see this problem that Daniel cries out with is, re, is remedied in the 70th week of Daniel when Christ returns. Daniel 9, 18 through 19. Now remember, Throughout this whole prayer, it's one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible, Daniel is acknowledging his sin and the sin of the Israelites, and he's acknowledging that they didn't bear the Lord's name in a righteous way. Listen to what he says. I'm just skipping ahead to verses 18 through 19. But he admits their sins. He says, Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. So stop there. Notice the city is called by Yahweh's name, but did they live in that way? Well, no, they thought it would be a good idea to sacrifice their children to Molech too, just like the pagans did. And they said, yeah, we have Yahweh, but we want a bumper crop just like the pagans across the street, so why don't we worship Baal to cover all of our bases? Because after all, when Baal gets together with Asherah, 
they create a bumper crop. Shouldn't we go, let's cover all of our bases and go with their gods too. And so they bore Yahweh's name in a vain way. And that led to destruction upon Jerusalem, the whole nation. And what did that do? It brought disrepute upon Yahweh's name. The pagans said, who is this Yahweh? Look, they're easily taken by the gods of Assyria and Babylon. And so all of it's in a shambles. Isaiah's just, or excuse me, Daniel's willing to just say, we did it. It's our sin that brought disrepute upon your name. And he says, by the way, the city is called by your name. And he says, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. So notice Daniel appeals to the character of God in his prayer. And then in verse 19, he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. So what comes right after this is the 70 weeks prophecy where he lays out the plan that you and I are now reading about in Revelation that God is going to act through the Messiah to vindicate his name. And so then we see in the book of Revelation this very promise. Revelation 3.12, notice this promise to Philadelphia, those who are Philadelphia, but it extends to all Christians. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Now, contrast that with those who have the name of the beast. They have 666, and they belong to Satan. But the promise to those who overcome, they're going to bear the name of God. And the idea is they will no longer bring disrepute upon his name. So it's not just a a reward, although certainly it is, but it's also a promise of obedience that God will one day in his people make them so that they will not bear the name of the, the Lord in vain anymore. Isn't that beautiful? Now, let me show you one more promise that we see at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, 3 through 4. Here, we're in the new Jerusalem, reigning in the new creation here. It says, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and what? His name will be on their foreheads. It's not going to be the mark of the beast. It's going to be the name of our God. And you and I will no longer bear his name in vain anymore no longer sinning against him. But notice back up in Revelation 13, 12. Let me hit the gospel here. Notice where it says, he who overcomes. That's how it is that you and I will bear the name of God rather than Satan. It's by becoming an overcomer. Now, how are you an overcomer? Well, 1 John 5, 5, Bob is going to be teaching about this not too long from now. It says, this is that which overcomes the world, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That is, it's faith that overcomes, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ overcame the world by trusting upon him. You're given his righteousness. You're given his atonement. Your sins are removed as far away as the east is from the west. And by the power of the Spirit, you'll start living in such a way where you don't bear his name in vain. And so, again, I want you to see these categories. You're either going to bear the name of Satan or you're going to bear the name of Christ. And that's a gospel call in the book of Revelation. Which will it be? And now, brothers and sisters, you and I have to realize that even during the church age, these categories are present even if they're not physically seen. Okay, so for the sake of time, let me go to the last slide here and the last verse of this section. Verse 18, Revelation 13, 18, John says, Here is wisdom. 
Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, one of the things we want to wrestle with in this text is this. Notice where it says 666, that's the number of man or number of a man. We have to wrestle with, is that a symbolic number? Or is it a literal number that actually brings about a certain name? And here's what I mean. Notice on the screen, symbolic. And by the way, I have um, on your slide, I changed your paperwork. You have diff- your slide on your paper is different than what I have. I used figurative rather than symbolic. The reason I changed it to symbolic is I want you to realize I'm not claiming that this isn't a literal number. It's a literal number. But the idea that we're wrestling with is what's the point of the number? Is it symbolic, namely of a satanic perversion? Or is it a literal number of a literal man, in other words, his name, of some past or future man, namely the Antichrist, and you could derive his name through the numbers by way of gematria? Now, what's gematria? It's using the Greek numbers, or the Greek letters, excuse me, and using them also as numbers and trying to calculate the name. Okay, so that was a common practice in the ancient Near East. The Greeks did it, the Hebrews did it, many other cultures did it as well. So the letters would double as numbers, and the idea then is you would calculate this man's name. It'll say 666, and you calculate it all out, and it ends up being, yeah, exactly, Nero or Jerry or whoever, you know, John, uh, Al, whatever it is, it's going to be his name. Now, let me give you some different proposals here. I want to talk about the literal interpretation first, that the number 666 here has to do with a literal man's number or name. Let me just cite to you a man named Robert Mounts. He says this. He says, quote, Guillet, that's a famous scholar in the circles that write on eschatology, he finds that the initials of the Roman emperors from Julius Caesar to Vespasian add up to 666, but he has to omit Otho and Vitellius to make it work out. Okay, so notice these guys in history are trying to claim, look, it must be the Roman emperors. But in order to get 666 to line up to all of them, they had to leave out two of them conveniently. So that doesn't work out. He goes on to say 666 is the numerical equivalent of Nero. And he says which variant reading 616 is argued to support. But this involves taking the transliterated Hebrew form of a Latinized name from the Greek language, all the while using defective language. (laughs) <laughs> or defective spelling, excuse me, unquote. So the point is, that's not very likely either, is it? Mounts goes on to say this. He says, a shift to Hebrews' letters is unlikely in that Revelation is written in Greek, and there is no indication that the riddle is to be solved by transposing it into another language. Further, the name Nero was apparently never even suggested by the ancient commentators, even though his persecuting zeal made him a model of the Antichrist, unquote. Does everyone hear what he's saying? If John is trying to convey meaning in the Greek language, why would his audience assume, in order to get Nero's name, that they had to take the Greek language, use gematria, but translate it from the Hebrew to get themselves a Latinized name? That's a lot to expect and a lot of mental gymnastics for his audience to think about. Okay, so that's very unlikely. Now, what's interesting is there's a variant reading in this text. Instead of 666, some versions say 616. Has anyone ever been aware of that? Let me read to you. I wanted to do this because I wanted to show you 
What Bob and I use, Dane is familiar with this as well from seminary, it's a textual commentary in the Greek New Testament. The guy who puts this out is Bruce Metzger. And I want to pass this around because I want you to see that what he does is he takes every verse that has a variant, or I shouldn't say every one, but the most important ones, and he assigns a letter designation, A through D. And the A, let's say he has Mark 4, 5, whatever, uh, and he has A next to it. A would indicate that there's a variant reading, but he's certain that the variant reading is this. Well, if it's B, he's still pretty certain, but he's less certain. If he has C next to it, now we're not really quite sure. If it's D, it's kind of a toss-up. It could be either this or that. Okay, now that doesn't mean we have no idea. It just means it's either this or that. Are you with me? Well, here, this variant reading 616 is an A, meaning... I should say 666 is an A. They're certain that it should be 666 and not 616. And I'm going to read to you Bruce Metzger's reasoning. He says it this way. He says, quote, he says, Some versions, strongly supported, and he lists the minuscules, have 616. But he says, none of these were known, to, or he says, these were known to Irenaeus, who, however, says that 666 is found in all good and ancient copies and is attested by those who had themselves seen John face to face. So realize Irenaeus, who saw John face to face, actually said, no, 666 is the original. Okay, that's powerful testimony. So 616 was a variant that he didn't support. He says 616 was also read by two minuscule manuscripts that unfortunately are no longer extant. When Greek letters are used as numerals, the difference between 666 and 616 is merely a change from one letter to another. And he says it's equivalent. Anyway, he goes on to talk about Latin Nero Caesar's name is equivalent to 616. So here's the point. The reason for the variant reading 616 is more than likely people wanted to link Nero to it. Is everyone with me? So it's the idea that they said, well, it must be Nero. Let's change this a little bit, and we get 616, and there you have Nero's name. But you still had to go from Greek to Hebrew and then transliterate the Latinized name, which is certainly not John's point. So what I want to do is I'm going to pass this around. I know we only have a few minutes left, but people can certainly take a look at this, and you get an idea of textual criticism And um, as we go. We can, you can look at it afterwards, too. I know we have some time. But now let me just talk one more piece of evidence here for a literal understanding of this. In other words, the name actually calculated will bring about a real name. To me, the only valid proposal of that is to understand that John is referring to a future person who is yet unknown. Okay? But even with that, I don't think that that's compelling. I am more of the ilk that sees this as symbolic. Now, let me lay out the evidence for you. I wrote this all down. I want to go point by point. What I'm going to show you is I believe that this idea of symbolic is the only way to think about it. Now, by the way, notice in the box I have calculate. That's a term that literally means count the cost, like you see in Luke 14, 28. Remember before they build the tower, they're to count the cost? It literally has to do with counting pebbles. The reason I put that in a box is because some say, aha, certainly you have to calculate his name. That means it must be a literal name of a man, um, etc. I don't think so. Here's one of the reasons that I think this is symbolic. Notice, first of all, in Revelation 17, 9 through 10, notice the phrase, here is the mind which has wisdom. Does everyone see that? Here is the mind which has wisdom. Notice how familiar that is or similar it is to here is wisdom. Okay, now, in Revelation 17, 9 through 10, right after it says, here is the mind which has wisdom, notice it talks about seven heads. 
But the seven heads were symbolic of something, weren't they? They're really seven mountains, and they themselves are symbolic of seven kings or kingdoms. Okay, so right away, when it has this has wisdom, it was a symbolic interpretation, not a literal one. So right away, I think John is tipping us off that we have symbolism here, not something to be taken literally in the sense that you calculate the name and you come up with Al or Jim or whatever. Okay, so 666, I think, is summarizing something or symbolizes something. Number two, 777 is a number that does represent the full perfection of the Trinity. Seven has to do with completion. God completed his creation according to Genesis 2-2 on the seventh day. That's what it says. Think about in uh, Joshua 6, the Israelites go around Jericho how many times? Seven times. It's not six, it's not eight, it's seven. It's completion. Uh, Think about in Exodus 21, the Israelites are to allow the Hebrew servants to go free on what year? The seventh. What year is the land to to remain fallow? On the seventh year, the Shemitah, as it's called. It's 70 times seven prophecy for the fulfillment of all of God's promise. So seven is the number of completion. Why are there three sevens? Remember in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. Notice the threefold repetition. It's the phrase, of, it's a superlative. So God is superlatively the God of completion. I think that that's the image of 777. Well, consider now, 666, John has gone out of his way to show us Satan's perversion. 666, think about it this way. Revelation chapter 12, who comes in on the scene? The dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. There's the perverted father. Who comes in right away in Revelation 13, 1 through 10? The Antichrist, the false son. Who comes right away after him? Revelation 13, 11 through 18. The false prophet, who is the false antichrist. So John has just showed us from Revelation 12 all the way to verse 18 right here that we've had a false trinity, 666. And by the way, how is this false trinity going to be thrown down? There are three sets of six judgments. The worst judgments occur at the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl three sixes, the destruction of man. So you have an imperfect man-made system that's going to be destroyed by God. It always falls short. Those three sixes, think about the last six at the bold judgment. What do you have? You have the battle of Armageddon where Jesus himself is going to come and destroy all of man's armies that surround Jerusalem and he's going to set up the kingdom of God. So 666 is not only a perversion, but it also is a symbol of inability, lack of completion, lack of power, that God, through his power, is going to overthrow that system. And I don't think we're reading into the text. I think we're just reading the text for what it says. So, yeah, with that, I'm sorry, we got Lonnie, and then Eric. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment about 6 and 7 again. Uh, The rainbow is seven colors, Uh and the uh, homosexual flag or rainbow is six colors. Mm. They take indigo out and violet and make it purple. They're discriminating against indigo. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you know, and Adam. If anyone has ever seen some of Adam's work in Genesis, you'll know that he does some great work where he shows that number seven is extremely important. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Uh, 
uh, actually, this is more of a question than anything. Um, I had taken some classes from a, a, a fellow who had, was a kind of a Hebrew scholar, and yeah. I'm just going with my memory, and I think that well, the Hebrew people were very, uh, numbers were, they, they just did all kinds of things with numbers. Yeah. And I believe that six was the number of man, I yeah, think. Is that, exactly is that right? right? Yeah, I think that is true. And um, think about this, either way, if you take a literal interpretation of this and say this is going to calculate some future man's name, you're still having to use numbers. But here, let me just leave you with this. The reason I don't think we have to wait until some future generation, they're going to add up 666 and it's going to calculate some man's name. Think about it this way. Why? What's the point? Think about if, if Adolf Hitler was really the Antichrist. And let's say you were living in 1943. Would any one of you not know who Adolf Hitler was? Would you have to calculate some number and figure it out? Well, why in the world would John require that of believers? He's just laid out the complete history of the guy and what he's going to do, what he's going to act like. Why is determining who the Antichrist is for that generation that lives within the 70th week of Daniel dependent upon number gematria with 666? I think it's ludicrous. I just don't see the point in it. And I think John has gone to great lengths by just showing us the false trinity that indeed the symbolic interpretation is indeed to be preferred here. Again, you saw him say here is wisdom in Revelation 13, 18, symbolism, Revelation 17, 9 through 10, here is a mind which has wisdom, symbolism. And so, again, John seems to even preface a symbolic thing that he explains by using here is wisdom. So, dear brothers and sisters, the big picture is this. All of the work of Satan's false trinity is going to be thrown down. But for those of us who are living now during the church age, the big picture is who do we belong to? We either belong to the Antichrist, even though the mark isn't on us, or we belong to Christ by faith in, in him. It's one or the other, just as Bob has been laying out for us in 1 John. And we have to know, and every time the Antichrist work and the false trinity's work is brought up, his destruction is always shown to be at hand. And we'll be continuing that idea as we continue out through Revelation. Dear brothers and sisters, at the end, God wins. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're on the winning side. Satan's plan and his false trinity will be thwarted. Let's bow our, or not bow our knees, let's bow our heads in prayer. You can bow your knee too if you want. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for these great promises in your scripture. We thank you, Lord, that we can belong to you and have your name. We thank you, Lord, that we can have that by being an overcomer through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that on the last day when we're raised up with him, we will no longer bring disrespect or disrepute upon your name. We will no longer bear it in vain but we will truly bring you obedience as you deserve and will bring great glory to your name. I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters who belong to you. I thank you, Lord, that you've called them out of this world. I pray, Lord, that through the sermon today and through our means of grace, fellowship, and through your word, that you would enable them to persevere into that last day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.